Welcome to season two of the Summit Podcast with your co-hosts, Andrew March and Jeremy Terman. We invite successful people, including business executives, pro athletes, investors, and entrepreneurs to discuss how they define success and what keeps them driving each and every day. All we ask is that you rate and review the show if you found any value in the episode you're about to listen to. Once again, thanks for taking a listen and on with the show. Today's episode, we want to thank our sponsor, Fitzby, an athleisure company designed to re-inspire and facilitate your on-the-go lifestyle. Check out Fitzby at fitspi.com. That's fitspi.com and use code the summit 30 for 30% off. So welcome climbers. We're really excited for today's episode. We have uh, a really esteemed guest who has an extremely interesting background in history. Um, and so his name is Scott Bedford, and he is a successful hedge fund owner and investor, a philanthropist, and also a heliski instructor. So all of these things from the outside may not seem like they click, but we're going to ask Scott for the background and the history of how he's come to be where he's at in life, his experiences and his success, and then his passion about skiing. And if you are really into skiing or just pivotal life changes, you know, we're going to talk about Scott's life-changing decisions when he was on a ski trip in Patagonia. So without any further ado, Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Appreciate it. So the first question that we ask all of our guests is, you know, how do you define success? I think success is a really broad measure, but I mean, I think a lot of guys in my world measure it financially in terms of just a bank account. And I think it's a pretty shallow way to do it. I mean, success for me is sort of all encompassing. It's, you know, building a business, you know, raising a family, having a successful marriage, uh, giving back to the community. It's sort of, it's a, it's a package. I think that's so true. You can't just say, if I make millions of dollars, that makes me successful. Because what are you doing to help contribute and and add and grow to the communities in which you serve? Now, let's kind of break it back to, you know, Chico, I I spent a year there. That's how Andrew and I met. Um, And and building your your business mindset and network. And you grew up very passionate about skiing. Where did you learn to take that of, of focusing on passion for skiing versus passion for business? Well, my, you know, my passion for skiing was, I started skiing when I was four at Mount Lassen. I actually was born and raised in Chico. So it's a local ski hill. And um, it was just part of what my family did every weekend. And then we also went to Tahoe. And then I worked at, uh, I worked at Squaw Valley in high school in the ice rink when it was still there. And then I actually managed the the Lassen ski area and went to school full time. Lassen only operated Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So I did that for two years. I uh, was a pro ski patrol at Alpine Meadows uh, one year at Chico. And then I took uh, a season off, I mean, a, a year off school and moved to Sun Valley, worked for Sun Valley Lodge. So, so it was, you know, my goal was always to get into either the recreation or the ski industry or some segment of that. Cause I really just enjoyed being outside and the whole environment. So. Now what about the environment was really appealing to you? And then how did that ultimately transition 
to where you started to focus more on business and specifically finance. So you had this dream, you had this experience growing up, you know, being passionate about skiing, but at what point was there this, you know, pivotal decision to, okay, maybe I'm not going to be a career ski patrol, but I got to go work in business. Like, what was that all like? You know, that's a great question. I, I think for me, it was, um, I went back up, I'd been up at Sun Valley for a year and I actually originally went up there to try to get a job on the ski patrol, which is a very, you know, extremely low turnover on the patrol. And it's a very coveted position in a lot of ski areas. So I was just up there uh, over break, skiing with, a, you know, three or four buddies and um, actually walked into the patrol shack and spoke to the head of patrol and he gave me an interview, which is basically an on-ski interview on the mountain for about two hours. And then at the end of it, he offered me a job. And I was literally, that was January of my senior year. And so I was looking at graduating that spring and I was just like, here is a big fork in the road. And one of the things I'd come to realize was, you know, one of the things I really think is important is you're young and sort of working in different jobs and looking at different industries and different people is like, try to put yourself in their shoes. I mean, what do you, you know, because life goes by so quick, but I mean, 10, 20, 30 years, you know, what is it going to look like? And the reality for me at that point, and I'm really glad that happened was like, I thought, you know what, if I take this job, I'm going to be really happy, but I'm not going to have money. And Money at that point was really important to me, you know, mainly for security, uh, just the way I grew up. Um, I put myself through college and I just didn't like not having money. And so that sort of, you know, made me go down the road of, you know, getting basically to Wall Street. Yeah, I think a lot of people, you know, struggle down that path of what do you do that makes you happy? But then what do you do that allows you to be like, have a sustainable lifestyle and do the things right. that you want to do? And, you know, the Gary V's of the world that say, just stop. If you don't like what you're doing, stop doing it. And you can just figure out a way. It's like, okay, like there's some truth to that. But like, if you want to hit that quote unquote freedom, which some people on the podcast have talked about is they never have a number. It's just, I want to hit freedom to do this you need to pursue a career that allows you that stability. So, so that passion for then investment banking or is from finance, did that come then from college or where, where did you figure out where you needed to shift yourself when you realized, okay, I can't be a professional ski patroller for 30 years. I need to then go into something else. So for whatever reason, and don't ask me, my father was not in finance or I had no connection to finance, but I started reading the business section in the journal at a very young age. And uh, my mom actually got me a subscription to the journal when I was like 15. So I would read it every day. And then in 1980, 81, they actually started trading options for the very first time in the United States. So I was at Chico State, I took out a student loan and I started trading options very seriously. And uh, I did really well and then I got completely wiped out. So I not only had lost everything, but I had student loans. So, but it was a huge life lesson. But I mean, the passion for that was real. It's like, I really enjoyed the process. And part of the stock market to me that still, I get up every morning and I, I still love it is the fact that it's, it's really, it's like an onion. You, you learn every single day. 
And there's nothing smarter than the stock market. I think that's an interesting, you know, point that's worth diving into. You know, you, you said you had had some success trading these options. You were good at it and then you got wiped out. You know, I want to dive into the topic of like, what makes people good, right? You've obviously been, been exceptional at your job investing yours and other people's money, but what is it that actually makes people good? You know, specifically, I, I think number one, it's, it's really as simple as hard work. And, you know, for me, one of the big things that I did when I got to Wall Street in New York, I was in a uh, training program. So there was 13 guys, all guys at that point. And every one of them was either from an Ivy League or had an MBA, Harvard, MIT. And so I was the only guy, I was literally like a walk-on in sports. And there's a whole nother story to how I got that job, but it was basically just persistence. And so I realized that my opportunity was fleeting. And so I just made a decision like I was going to be the first guy in and the last guy out, which means I was the first guy in the building. So there's 1600 employees and I was the first guy to walk in. And I was usually the last guy to walk out at eight o'clock at night. So I just literally initially worked harder than anyone. And so that allowed me to do a lot of things and to learn a lot. But I think anyone that's successful, if you, if you really kind of delve into what makes them is like, they have, they have a core discipline of, and it, that can be defined by many different things, but it's, it's generally that, you know, they get up at the same time, they read books there, but there's a discipline to what they do. And that to me is really what defines, you know, how are you like successful over time? For me, I, I literally developed a trading process that was extraordinarily successful for me. It wouldn't have probably worked for a lot of people, but it allowed me over the lifespan of my fund, which was 25 years, to return over 20% a year net to partners with only two down years. And that was primarily net short. So in my industry, that was like the top 1% of the country of those numbers. Scott, I resonate so well that they're saying that, you know, luck favors a prepared hand. And then there's also the standpoint of I'm going to work harder than any single person here. I embrace that same mindset in basketball. I didn't, I didn't have a single fast twitch muscle in the body, but you bet I would dive after every live ball because I'm going to leave my entire heart in the court. Now right. I didn't go play college basketball. My, my basketball career ended at, after high school, but the, the hard work gets you so far. But then once you get to the, the so far, then there's that next level. Then there's the 1% of the 1% of the 1%. So what do you think in addition to your hard work as you built your core discipline made you like unshakable and better than those that you were, you know, surrounded by? You know, I actually have that quote right here. It's been one of my core quotes that I, I read every day. I mean, it's, it's a great, great quote. Um, I, I think, you know, the other thing that I was extraordinarily fortunate of, and again, I, I literally stumbled onto this without, and now I actively tell people to do this, but really mentor, you know, find mentors, find people that are older than you that have been on the road and want to kind of give back and give to them. If, if you can't really have a lot, I generally have two to three mentors. I still have mentors, but it's probably been 
the most important thing. It's how I started my business. It's how I built my business. And it's how when I, I got into very difficult times, as you do as an entrepreneur, like mentors are there. And they're a person that you can talk to about your innermost fears, whatever. And it was really, really powerful to me. So I had, uh, I had listened to a few podcasts that you had done and, you know, you, that resonates with, with myself and, and Jeremy, but going back to, you know, identifying these mentors and more specifically, like the people that have been the most important in your life, you know, who are those, those handful of people that have been, you know, truly, truly important for you throughout your life from your earliest you age you know, to now. And how did you find those people? Well, you know, I, you know, probably um, the, Andrew and I have talked about this, but the, the first one I had was a gentleman by the name of John Cober, who was an entrepreneur. And I went to work for him right out of high school. And I didn't even know like what an entrepreneur was or, but he, he had, I mean, he, he had his own business, businesses, and he was very successful. And he drove a Pantera, which at the time was a super hot, basically street legal race car. And he had a great life. And I started to realize like, you know, because he had taken those risks early and started a business and started a company, like he now had this flexibility to do what he wanted to do, but he worked really, really hard. I mean, the guy worked 12 hours a day, you know, seven days a week, but he also took three months off. And so you know, he was critical for me. And, you know, he helped me. I still look back on that. I still talk to him. I, I think that of anyone, you know, he doesn't even realize the importance of what he did in my life. But then when I got to Rothschild, um, I was an institutional salesman. And so that kind of made me outward bound with clients. And so I would talk to basically what I really enjoyed were the hedge funds because the guys were almost like cowboys. They could do whatever they wanted. They had these small, you know, relatively small funds. And there were two or three of them initially that I talked to that um, I tried to get them to hire me. And so, you know, one of them said, you know, he'd hire me, but he wouldn't pay me. Basically, you know, you, you eat what you kill. You know, the other guy was, you know, why would I pay you? I mean, he was really, the, the, the second guy was really, why would, I, why, would, why would I hire you? You should just go on your own. And uh, I'll make more money if you have your own fund and we can talk all the time. And so, but I mean, I talked to those guys every single day and they educated me more about the stock market than anyone else. And I also brought things to them. And I think that's important with men, you know, if you have mentors, it's like, you have to create a two-way street. What, whatever that means. Sometimes it's literally writing a thank you note, you know, telling them how much you appreciate them. Um, you know, uh, it, it's, it's sometimes small things for people that really make a big impact. So, and you'll find that most people are really happy to help you. And one of the things I used to do was really just cold call people. It sounds as crazy as it was, I'd pick up the phone and, and call, you know, somebody that I had read an article about and go in and talk to them. You know, that 
that changed my life. And, you know, short story is in 1992, I read an interview in Barron's, a financial weekly uh, newspaper. Um, it was an interview with Matt Simmons, and he was an oil guy in Houston. And it was one of the most profound articles I'd read as an investor in forever. And so I just decided on Monday, I picked up the phone and called his office and got connected to him and started talking to him. And about 10 minutes later, he's like, you know, where are you? And I'm like, well, I'm in San Francisco. And he's like, well, if you ever get down here, you know, I'm happy to take you to lunch. And I said, I'll be down there tomorrow. <laughs> so I jumped on a plane because like when guys give you an opening, you got to take it. And, you know, I built a fund. We, you know, I, I I met partners down in Houston because of him. We, we started an oil company for 10 million bucks. We sold it for 500 million, you know? And it, I, I, I put it back to that one guy. So, you know? so as simple, I mean, I guess, as simple as just making a phone call to someone that you read or a person and reaching out. Uh, one of the previous guests we had said he reached out to Mark Cuban and Mark Cuban emailed him back after like, I don't know, a dozen plus times and it was like a very short reply. Uh, but I think there's like that fear factor of, oh, everyone's doing this or, ah, I'm not going to reach out to Scott right. because I'm sure Scott gets a hundred people a day reaching out to him. Yeah. And what, what value can Jeremy Terman in Kansas city at 26, what am I going to bring to Scott that Scott doesn't already have? And then I think what needs to click is like, well, there's a lot of things that you can bring, but it takes that tenacity and it takes the mindset of you, you mentioned this line, Scott, which is create the two-way street as simple as writing a thank you card acknowledging something in an article that someone posts you just need to show that like you want the effort to care and to your point people are not going to turn you away if it's genuine and authentic now it may be a lot of gen genuine and authentic people reaching out so that's where then persistence and the, right. no one will outreach harder and you're going to say jeremy i'm going to take your phone call because you've sent 100 messages and I'm, i'll hear you out right. But that's so true. I think so many people get afraid of that. Um, and it's just so crucial. I just want to hammer it home that like anything no, is possible. Yeah. Anything is possible. Yeah, it's really critical. So so, so taking that pivot, so you, you go through and you start to build the fund and you start to see, wow, like the enjoyment of making money. I mean, I feel the same way building startups, advising startups. Like I see the fire and the passion and and people ask like, why do you love it? It's like, cause you're building something like something tangible. So you're building this business and you're seeing the money, you're providing great returns, but then you, you know, in the back of your head, I love skiing. Like my, my fork in the road, I could have chosen, like I could have been like the ski patrol, man. I could have been on every mountain in the world. How do, how do you then start to realize like, okay, like, did, did I hit my limit? Did I reach the top and now I pivot? Like walk me through then how you go through this like curve again of, of another uh, uh, fork in the road? Well, one of the things you do when you do have your own business is you, you can mold what it looks like and what your, I, I guess, I don't want to say free time looks like, but um, so what I did in the early nineties was um, I organized a group of money managers that were just coincidentally great skiers. And so we started going up to Canada and heli skiing at the Monashies. And so the great news was, was we're all, you know, successful money managers, but I, I, I planned it as a retreat. Like we skied, but at night we sat around and talked about the market and guess what? We can write off the whole trip, right? 
And so we did that for quite a number of years. And then I turned that into an actual conference. I started a tech fund with a partner in 2001. And then in 2002, I, he, he had this amazing house in Vail. And I thought we should have a tech conference and invite uh, companies. And so one of the, and so at that point, that was sort of the resurrection. I mean, tech was destroyed, right? And this was a value fund. And so one of our huge successes at the time was a company called Netflix, which was just getting started. And so we became, you know, the CFO was a huge skier. And so, you know, he would come to this, he would speak and you'd get this basically three days one-on-one. But so part of that is, is that it's just like organized your time so that you can do the things you love, but incorporate it with what you do. But I, I would say that where my life really did change was um, 2008 in the financial crisis. I had organized uh, literally an expedition to Patagonia to go heli skiing. And it had never, the trip had never did, been done before. And so it was in September, right? As the, you know, the markets were melting down. And I literally called the guy that organized it. And I just said, look, I can't do this. I can't do this. You know, the, the markets are melting down. And he's like, okay, you know what? You can't go, but we're all going. You paid for it and we're going to go. And I thought about it for a day and I called him up and I said, okay, I'm in. And so I went down there and um, it changed my life for two reasons. One is it was so remote, so removed. We had... The only thing we had is sat phones. And so I could call in once a day, but I couldn't really do what I normally do. And we were in such a wild environment where 80% of what we skied was first descents. We had um, a ground group following us. We had a helicopter we could never turn off because if the engine didn't start, then we, we were literally stranded in Patagonia. And so there was all these exponential things that were really fun and challenging and it sort of took my mind into a totally different sphere. And I, I, I really came back and just said, you know, I had this big organization and I was spending all this time managing this huge infrastructure now versus managing money. And I was losing my core competency. And I just decided, I thought, you know what? It's life is not worth this. And at that point, I just made a career change. And I bought a heli-ski business in Utah and um, became a heli-ski guy, which is kind of crazy in of itself at 50 years old. Well, I'm sure for the, uh, the aspiring first ascent skiers out there, you know, they'll find a way to get in touch to see if they can <laughs> some cool stuff. Um, you know, but I, th I think that's a super fascinating point. You know, I don't, I don't think everybody has to go to Patagonia on a heliskiing trip to have these moments of clarity, but you know, when you were thinking about it, you know, what was going through your mind to where you, you had that decisiveness. I mean, that's what it sounds like from the outside, you know, listening in is there was an element of decisiveness where it's like, you had this moment of clarity, you committed, you made a decision because I think what you see a lot these days is people know intuitively what they ought to do. And then it just drags out the decision, you know, and there's just this procrastination. So like, what, what do you think it was that gave you that, that decisiveness? I mean, I would imagine it's important in being, you know, a successful investor, but you know, how did you develop that? I think what came to me was like, literally when you're, you know, I went from 
Wall Street into Patagonia. I mean, it was like, I could have been on the moon. It was so different. And that my mind went in so many different places. And I just, I, I'd never experienced, you know, that level of like pure bliss of being in the mountains. And like, I'm like, okay, I can do this full time. But to do that, it's almost like the guy in the Utah Canyon that had to cut off his arm to survive. It's like, okay, you've got to make a choice. And it took me two years because, you know, a financial business is, is hard to sell. It's, it, there's, there's a lot of different aspects. You know, I, I had all these people. And so everything had to be unwound over time. But, you know, I look back on that. It was like one of the best decisions I ever made because then I just moved into having a family office, running my own money and having sort of a freedom to do what I want to do in the markets. So to me, it's been a huge win-win, but to your point, I think is really accurate because I think a lot of people get to that point and they can't, they, their ego won't let them step away because once you step away, you, you literally give up kind of who you are as a person and that persona. And a lot of people just can't deal with that. That's what they, they a lot of a lot of athletes have this this trouble of when they're big time athletes and they leave. It's like, well, your identity was the player on the field, not right. who you are. And we even on one of our episodes, Marcus Brown, professional water skier, another Chico State alum, like won a world's championship. And he said the moment that he won that championship in in Australia, he felt empty. Cause he's like, This is who I thought I was. And then it's like you pull the cloak and it's like, who am I? Okay, I'm this multi-million successful professional, but then it's like really who I am at the core. And I think it's so fascinating that like your true passion and then, you know, what became the hobby of skiing, really you turned that hobby into its own business, which then led you down all these different paths, but you made that hobby such that it was a, another vehicle to enable a different network of people to engage in different dialogue outside of that, like grind on wall street. Yeah. And I, I, I think that could be a lesson in, in transferred that like, man, if your passion is, let's just say bowling, I'm sure there's people that love to bowl and who knows the demographic that's there. But if you're passionate about podcasting, bowling, skiing, building communities, and then excelling with those groups and building them over time could open to other opportunities. So you should never let down a close a door or be closed minded about an activity because it could help grow your personality. I think it's, it's, I mean, obviously seen in, in yourself, Scott. So when you take that step then and, and you've, you know, realized that you need to go back, then do you feel like you're at ground zero or did you already know, Hey, I had this vision of what I want this to look like. Like, I know skiing is this, here's the vision or talk through when you are like, okay, the door is shut. This, this venture is done. Now what's next? Walk through what was going in your mind. I mean, is this a heli ski guy? Yeah, yeah. Well, Going from, from, from hedge to then heli ski. Like, did you know that was the vision all along? Or is it like, okay, I'm yeah, done. Now it's like reset. I, I think it was, it was something. It was never like in the back of my mind. But, um, you know, Powderbird, the, the heli ski business I bought, is we're the largest ski area in the United States. And so that part to me was just cool. Just like, you know. We had a lot of terrain, but I mean, what was interesting to me was like, I walked into that organization at the lowest, even though I was an owner, I walked in at the lowest point 
because I was going to learn a craft and it's an apprenticeship as a guide. And all of a sudden I went from basically walking on a bus, being on the front, telling everybody where we're going to go to walk into the very back of the bus and not saying anything. And so part of that to me was, was humbling. It was training. It was, you know, a whole new process of understanding terrain and, and avalanches and weather and people. And then, you know, the greatest thing for me was like working in teams as guides where you literally have each other's back in the sense that you're risking your life and a person has your life in their hands. And in the backcountry, that's a real thing. And my avalanche instructor was killed in an avalanche a week after I finished class with him. And so it's, it's real. And that part to me was always, you know, going out on a high hazard day with, you know, three guys that do avalanche work was like one of the most just coolest experiences I could have. But it was literally starting over and I had to be, I had to be subservient to those guys that had the experience. I want to, I think that's one tragic that that gentleman lost his life. Um, you know, hopefully when, when people are in these situations, they're pursuing their life passion. And so they, you know, hopefully they went out in a way that, you know, they, they enjoyed, but, you know, talking about, you know, starting from scratch from square one, you know, we all start from square one at something and, you know, when making these pivots, you know, what, what was going through your mind knowing you were starting at square one? Was it, you know, you'd mentioned a little bit of humility going into this craft that you were about to learn, but you know, what was it that allowed you to be successful at starting from square one and then getting to that ultimate goal of, you know, being an instruct, not an instructor, but a a guide. You know, Andrew, it's, it's, it, it goes back to, and this is what one of the characteristics I look for in entrepreneurs when I invest is I love guys that have failed. And, you know, when you talk about square one where guys had started companies and it didn't work and they failed and they had to go do something else to make money and then they try again. I like those guys. I like failure first. I went, you know, cause physically I went through that and I know what it's like and I know how it changes you as a, as a person. But I mean, I think with any of those in square one is like, what, what drove me when I got to Powderbird were the same things that drove me my whole life. It's like, I just was literally first guy there, last guy to leave. And I'd, I'd shovel the, the stairs in the morning. I did whatever it took. I mean, I showed these guys that I was going to work harder than anyone. And so that was, you know, from anything else, they realized that I wasn't a poser, you know, that I wasn't just wanting to hang out or do this. It was like, I'm going to put in the hard work. And once people see that, then all of a sudden, you know, you'll get respect. Yeah, I think it, being genuine and authentic, like you hit it home over and over again of, you know, if you're someone that you say, I'm passionate about this, I'm willing to take a back seat and learn everything and then let my actions do the talking, then you earn the respect of people. And, and then they're like, okay, I'll take you seriously because you've, show it, you've shown me that this is something that you're passionate and care about. I'm interested to hear the failure first because um, I've been an entrepreneur myself and in my very short and young career, career, and I tried to evaluate and look at the failures and maybe um, minor successes or successes of others, and then either reinvent the wheel or piece together different um, 
you know, parts of business plans or strategies from other businesses to prevent the ultimate failure. Uh, I'm curious, what about that having to fail and, and, and I guess either start over or then regain something is, is more of a choice that you take than someone that could then analyze and scope different pieces to build the pie and not reinvent the wheel. Yeah, I don't think it's, I, I think you don't, you don't set out to fail. You know, you, you really don't. But I mean, if to take the leap of an entrepreneur is really taking a risk, right? And it's a real risk. And when you take that risk, there's failure. And like one of the things, like when young entrepreneurs, guys that come to me with, you know, they said, what book should I read? I'm, I'm like, read Lewis and Clark, <laughs> Undaunted Courage. You know, because Thomas Jefferson, he funded it, right? But those two, those two guys, you know, they set out and like no one knew where they were, right? <laughs> For two and a half years, they were just gone. And so, you know, they, they had daily failure. And so that book is like, you realize the core of just how tough the world is. And so, but failure to me is like, I, it's, it's funny because, you know, spending so much time down in Texas, like failure is a bit of a badge of honor down there. It's like every guy you meet is like, oh, yeah, I went bankrupt. You know, I went back, you know, and then it's like and it, they move on. There's not like this bitterness or whatever. It's like they figured out and they move on. But you learn more from failure than you do from your successes. And so like one of the problems I think with entrepreneurs is like if they've had kind of like one to two quick successes, they just think they can light the world on fire. Those guys make me nervous. Yeah. There's, there's a, there's an interesting quote where it's like, you know, once you're lucky, twice you're good kind of thing, where it's like, can you replicate the success that you've had, you know, multiple times over. And, you know, I think it's an interesting kind of topic because right now we're in really frothy times from an investment perspective in the markets and things are going pretty well despite COVID of course. Um, and so it could be very interesting how, you know, reality is kind of shake things out, shake out some of these, these entrepreneurs over time. But I want to shift gears a little bit and go towards um, some of the philanthropic work that you've, you've committed to. You know, how did you get to this, this path where you wanted to become a philanthropist? Was it always on your list of goals as a person where it's like, I want to be a philanthropist one day and give back to my community? Or, you know, how did this philanthropy really start and where is it now? You know, it started with my wife is we, um, when I started to make money, we'd sit down at the end of the year. And one of the things I did was I take enough money out of the fund that we had a budget that would get us through the year. And then she would take out you know, a lot to, you know, she said, okay, this is for charity. And initially I was like, well, no, we need to, you know, I need capital to build this business. And she's like, no, we need to give it away. And both of us are, are Christian. And so it sort of became, it, it's a difficult thing to do at first, but then, you know, my wife is really good at it. She was an analyst off wall street and um, I just turned it into like, okay, if we're going to do this, let's do it right. Let's meet with these people. Let's understand where the money's going. What are their budgets? What is, you know, what are expense ratios, et cetera, et cetera. So that part became sort of fun for the two of us. And then in um, my older daughter, uh, unfortunately contracted Lyme disease in her senior in high school. And it took us sort of about 
18 months to figure out what was wrong with her. And through that journey, we met another family that also had Lyme and their daughter wanted to do a fundraiser to give back. Cause when you're in these waiting rooms, you, you see all these families and Lyme is not covered by insurance. So people are literally going bankrupt. And this young woman had the idea of like, let's do a fundraiser that we can give money to a family that they can get treatment for Lyme. So that's, you know, so Limelight was founded on that. And then that first family basically stepped aside, uh, didn't want to continue it. And I kind of thought, you know, we'd given away about $80,000 and I thought that it was sort of, we were done. And my wife just said, no, we're not done. We're going we're gonna to keep going. And so at that point, I just said, okay, you know, if we're going to do this, we'll do it right. And I said, I'll fund you. And then we built an organization. We went out and raised institutional money. And, um, you know, so 100% of what you give us goes to treatment grants. And so we cover all our own expenses. And we've given away about, uh, since 2011, over $6 million. And we give it out $10,000 a tranche to a child and the, you can do, it's like a scholarship. Basically we give it to you and you can spend it any way you want, but it has to be for the treatment of Lyme. And so it's been extraordinarily, you know, my wife's, you know, been to Washington DC. We've, um, she speaks at conferences. It's, it's a national charitable organization. We, we've touched over 600 families. I mean, it's, it's truly amazing and what you and you you know one of the things you don't realize is how it makes you feel as a person when you actually see what you're doing. Well, I think everything comes full circle. It's like when you when you build your personal success, the 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 next question is how how do I help others achieve success? No other is that helping others achieve the the minimum of of the life that I'm able to have. Is it giving them a laptop or a computer to be able to work from home if they don't have the ability or the resources or to help, you know, cure a disease or, or, or an illness that, you know, is very costly, you know, having that full circle, like does, it makes you feel good, but like, that's part of, I guess, the internal drive that I could see is like, when you say that you have to do it right. It's not just like, oh, hey, let's just write a check and we're contributing our part. It's like, hey, no, let's go make a difference. And I think that, you know, you've seen that in the professional world and then philanthropic, it just goes through of like at the core of like what drives you. And that goes back to, you know, when we ask what defines success, you know, it's building, you know, having a family that you care for, a community that you're able to, to impact positively. And then you wrap that full circle and like that is then how you define success. Yeah. Well, Scott, we'll, 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 we'll finish with, you know, we, we love talking about industries and businesses um, that you're excited about um, and, and that you think you know, are, are fascinating, you know, whether COVID times or not. What are some businesses and industries that you've been following closely? I would say um, there's a company that I've become deeply involved in. It's a young kid out of Montana that uh, has an energy product. It's called Voke, V-O-K-E. And he developed it. He was trying to be a professional skier and he was trying to develop a product for himself that would give him energy on the ski hill that was organic and wasn't like five hour energy or anything else. His dad's a biochemist. And so he actually uh, dropped out of school. 
University of Montana and, and started this company. And it's been around now for about six years. And I met him coincidentally skiing, <laughs> but I met him at the outdoor retailer and he was literally walking up and down the aisles, handing this stuff out. And I just started talking to him and he's a very sociable kid, but you know, he said, well, I'm the founder, this is my company. And I'm like, well, you know, give me your pitch. And in like 30 seconds, he gave me the pitch. And I'm like, that was impressive. And I said, you know, so I gave him my card and I said, hey, you know, give me a call. I said, I might be interested. And, you know, that was two years ago. And so I'm essentially the, the largest institutional investor. I just, um, you know, brought in the first CEO of Five Hour Energy to run it. And I'm, I'm like, we're right at that point where we're going to scale. And I think we've got a clear road to like basically hundred million in revenues. And cause it's an all organic energy product that you use every single day. So check it out. That's fascinating. Folk, we'll have to make sure we get it in the show notes. <laughs> Love it. Well, Scott just wanted to wrap it up and say, thanks for joining us. Um, you know, we really appreciate you you know, shedding some light on your background and, you know, sharing some nuggets of wisdom for everybody that's listening. So appreciate you coming on to the show. Yeah. Thanks, Andrew. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Summit Podcast. If you found any value in this episode, all that we ask is that you rate and review our show and share it with one person. That could be a friend. It could be a coworker. It could be a family member. Doesn't matter. Just one person. If you have any questions or feedback or want to give ideas for guests, please visit our website and drop us a line there. Our website is thesummitpodcasts.com. That's thesummitpodcasts.com. And you can also find us on social media under the handle The Summit Podcasts. Mm-hmm.